Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. Some of the most influential leaders in this country are far from household names. In this episode, we meet a career public servant who has risen through the ranks from the New South Wales Public Service to the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet to Secretary of Veterans Affairs. Alison Frame holds a Bachelor of Speech Language, a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science and a Master of Public Administration from the London School of Economics. We explore ambiguity and how to make change in a big, unwieldy institution. Alison Frame, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. How long have you been in the job as Secretary of Veterans Affairs now? Since January of this year, January 23, in fact, was the day I commenced my appointment. Congratulations on the appointment. I know um, these are not insignificant roles, but I need to understand, and I think our listeners do, a little bit more about what does the role actually mean? It is a role heading a department, the Department of Veterans Affairs, which is in fact one of the oldest departments in the Commonwealth, um, which is probably not surprising. That probably makes sense to people. We've had people going to war since very early on in the Federation and the department was established in 1917 as veterans were returning from World War I and the Commonwealth Government recognised that they needed to have some services and response to men who were returning from the front. That was predominantly men, obviously, from World War I. And so the department was established as a department of the Commonwealth Government and it has continued that way for over 100 years. So it's got a really strong heritage and it's had different focuses over time. Like when people were coming back from World War I, there was a big focus on giving them land and setting them up for a life. Um, and you, everyone talks about, you know, soldier settlements and people getting a grant and going out and living in the country or doing, you know, or a suburban area of a big city. Over time, that changed for many years, many decades. The department was running big hospitals, big repatriation facilities, uh, big hospitals. I'm, I'm here in Brisbane at the moment. There was a big one in Brisbane, big one in Sydney at Concord and in Melbourne and Austin. And so they would actually run big delivery of services, but that changed again a few decades ago. And now the department provides a whole range of services, health, education, um, primarily compensation as well for Australian Defence Force members, and just responds to the needs of veterans. That's what we exist for. People who have served in our Defence Force have this facility to access services from the Department of Veterans Affairs in recognition of their service to our nation. And would I be right in assuming there haven't been too many female secretaries of this department? I'm the second. I am the second, Helen. So my predecessor, my immediate predecessor was a woman. She was also, I need to check this, but um, 
I understand she was the first major general in the Australian Army as well. So she had a very eminent career in the Defence Force directly. And then when when she left the Australian Defence Force, joined the Australian Public Service and had a career there and ended her career as the Secretary of the Department of Veterans Affairs. So this is probably not a question that someone as professional as you can answer, but how does a person who doesn't have a Veterans Affairs experience but has a, you know, obviously you've had a stellar and incredibly successful career as a public servant, but you're a woman, you're young, and you're in charge of Veterans Affairs. How does that happen? Yeah, thanks for saying I'm young. Can I just say that up front? That's very nice of you to say. Um, I'm probably older than people think, which is a good thing as well, I suppose. Most of the secretaries, or many of them, over the time, there would have been a lot. Many have not been veterans. You don't have to be a veteran. And in fact, in some cases, it brings some advantages as well in that you're not tied to a perception of being uh, linked to a particular service. So for those people who know the Australian Defence Force well, there is very strong connection to your service, uh, whether it's Army, Navy or Air Force. And sometimes then there can be a perception that someone would always have a bias towards the service that they come from. I'm not saying that is the case or that I'm, you know, saying that is true, but just that perception can exist. And also it's a different kind of role than you know, having a veteran background, it's it's a role about delivering quality services that are responsive, that meet need where it is, and it's about efficiency of processing and focusing on veterans as customers effectively to ensure that our systems and processes work in a way that is most um, seamless for them. So that's a different skill. Like that's not a skill set that it necessarily comes from being uh, from having a service history in the Australian Defence Force. It could be people have that skill set, but not necessarily. Uh, that's more a skill set that you develop when you're running big programs and policy and and services in a public service or in a non-government organisation. It could be any range of sectors there where you might be working in a in a delivery area where you're overseeing delivery of services directly. You're working with lots of staff across diverse geographic areas and you're having to oversee quality and um, quantity and make sure that things are delivered efficiently. And also, this is a really big part of it, that you're measuring outcomes, that you're seeing how things are going. You are constantly making changes in line with feedback and improving things where they need to be changed. I want to talk a bit about how to affect change in being bureaucratic structures, and that doesn't necessarily have to be just about the public service. It can be working in a significant bank or any size business that's big, because a lot of people listening to this podcast are in one of those roles right now, wondering how to navigate um, the multiple stakeholders um, and to actually feel like they're doing something. But before I get there, the other issue I just want to cover off is the concept of doing work that is values aligned or work that makes a difference. Can you talk briefly about what it was that drew you to being a public servant? Yeah, you're right about you you need to choose a vocation and a career that is in line with your values and is something that you think is adding value as well. Um, So that was a big driver for me in all my career choices. I want to feel, I want to go home every day and feel like I've made a difference and that I'm doing something that is making someone's life better. 
I don't know if this um, would be of interest to your listeners, but uh, my favourite author is George Eliot, who was a really amazing woman in uh, 19th century England. And she wrote this great novel where at the end of this fantastic novel about a woman who was just up against it all the time in her life, but really committed to making a contribution. She said that the impact um, of this woman's life on those around her was incalculably diffusive for the growing good of the world um, is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, is what she said. And I I could read you the whole quote, but it's something that's been a real motivator for me in that you measure, to me, you measure your life by what difference you make to others. How much of a difference are you making? And it might be really small. That's when George Eliot talks about it being incalculably diffusive. It might be quite a small change, but if that's a small change for lots of people, then that's making a really positive impact. And that is something that is um, important to me in assessing the value of what I do and where I'm focusing my efforts and energies. So I studied speech pathology at university, at the University of Queensland. I also did a Bachelor of Arts in political science. So I had this deep interest in government, always always had a really strong interest in policy and government and politics to an extent, but not as interested in partisan politics. I just love government policy in those aspects. So I did those two degrees. I practiced as a speech pathologist for five years in the disability sector, which was fantastic career. And I really enjoyed that. And you're working really directly with people, like you're going into people's homes, you're delivering services and professional advice to people. This is pre the NDIS. This is a long time before the NDIS when disability services were pretty sparse and people were under enormous pressure. You would be sitting in in lounge rooms of people who were just, you know, visibly distressed about the, the pressure on them and the struggle they were experiencing to try and access services. Um, for their often their children or maybe adult children as well or someone in their family. And um, that experience just taught me a lot about having confidence in what I knew, also gave me a confidence to go and check as well. I really learned in that experience that I didn't have to know everything. I just had to know where to find out. And I developed that as a, as a skill, in fact, where I'd sit with people and think, oh, I'm not actually sure what to do here, but... I know who can help me and I would go and find that out and come back and and be able to say really confidently, this is the right thing to do. This is how we're going to measure whether it's going to be effective or not. And it would be grounded in a reality as well of what's actually going to be practical. You couldn't give someone a recommendation to do something or buy some very expensive device that was just not going to be achievable. So you had to be grounded in practicality all the time and in measuring the success of your intervention or not, and changing, being agile if that wasn't working. So that was my professional background. And then I left that because, as I said, I had this abiding interest in government. And after five years in practice, I thought, now I want to go and work in policy and apply some of these skills around, uh, particularly from the disability sector in the first instance, to policy considerations around working with people with disabilities. So I moved to Canberra. I got a job firstly in the Health Insurance Commission, which is Medicare, effectively. I worked in Medicare for a while. And after only a year there, I went to the Department of, it was called Family and Community Services at that time, and worked in disability policy, which I had that professional background in. It was a very different job, though. It was just a totally different job when you're thinking about policy on a macro scale, like what what are we doing across the country for people with disabilities? How are you setting policy frameworks? When you're working in Canberra, it's about much higher order policy. 
But I did find that that practical experience really gave me um, a focus on outcomes and on cutting through complexity to be able to be clear about what you were focusing on and why. So that was my entrance to the public service and that was in 2000. And since then, I've worked in a whole range of roles, including at Parliament House for a while as an advisor and then in the Department of Human Services, I ran the Centrelink office network in Sydney for a few years. So I did those kinds of jobs. And then immediately prior to Veterans Affairs, I ended up in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet and was the Deputy Secretary for Social Policy there in Canberra. I was really integrally involved in the COVID response for a few years, which was probably the most demanding job I've ever had, where it was, it was just 24-7 for a few years there, just relentless and things moving very, very quickly and at a pace that people were probably less accustomed to from government. Um, but that's how it rolled in COVID. And from that role, that's when I was promoted to this role in Veterans Affairs. So going back to the point I made earlier about you've chosen a values-based career, you are on the front line and have been for a long time at doing important work, but you're still in a really big organisation with a lot of different interests, approaches, uh, in, uh, egos, um, politics, and I don't mean, you know, Canberra political politics, I mean office politics. Um, how have you managed to make a difference inside organisations that are really, really slow-moving and um, process-orientated? I probably would challenge that DVA is slow moving. I think it's a, it's a time of rapid change at the moment. I think all departments, government departments, go through periods of intensive change and then it might be more static for, you know, let's say five years and then there's another big reform agenda and there's a lot of intensive change again and turnover and um, real focused effort on a, on a new agenda and then you settle back into a, a you know, more... Um, stable position, I suppose. DVA is in, what, is in one of those periods of pretty significant change. We've got a Royal Commission into Defence and Veteran Suicide that's going to report finally in June next year. And that's obviously putting a lot of focus from, from the government, from the community, including the veteran community, onto what's happening in the department, what needs to change. So that's creating a lot of momentum around change. It's probably more rapid than it might have been in other years prior. But as I said, there would have been other periods when there's been intensive change. So there's a lot happening. I don't think it is a, a slow, um, slower to change organisation at the moment. But certainly I can share thoughts about change, affecting change in a big department. I'm still a student of that. But I had experiences and learnings from all those other kinds of jobs that I was telling you about, even when I was doing that Centrelink role, had a really, you know, developed a sense of what is it going to take to change customer satisfaction in this area and to change some of the ways we do things and to get people to innovate and feel free to do that. So I had a lot of time to contemplate that and you bring all your experiences. To me, careers are cumulative in that you bring, you're constantly enriching and expanding your experience and then you keep bringing more and more to the next role that you do because of that depth of experience. So in this role, when I landed in the chair and we got a Royal Commission going on, we've got significant investment from the government, it's expanding in, in staff numbers really considerably. There's a lot of change happening and some people love change, some others find that 
you know, disconcerting and unsettling and would just prefer it to be over. Um, so you have to you have to be aware of that as well and how you manage change. Um, I think the most important thing for me in the way I approach it is that you have to be clear on what you're trying to do. You have to take some time. Uh, to me, that meant taking time to talk to the exec team and also uh, spending a lot of time out in the network with staff, hearing from them directly so that you're getting different perspectives, talking to veteran organisations and veterans in the community. What do they think needs to change? What are their priorities? What's important to them? So you do this intelligence gathering exercise at the beginning and you're just accumulating all this different advice and input to you about what's important, where do you need to focus? And of course, the biggest driver as well is the government. I mean, they're elected on a, on a policy platform and they make budget decisions on the basis of their priorities. So you've got those preeminent priorities as well. The government says, this is what we want you to achieve. The Royal Commission has made these recommendations. We've adopted them. So they are priorities. Like that's, that, that is set and that is very, very clear. But how you do that and also what else you do are those other priorities that you need to um, develop. So you do that big intelligence gathering exercise. To me, you engage really collaboratively with people in that. It's a real co-design exercise. I, I don't think anyone would have successfully achieved change if they haven't brought people in an organization with them. Maybe you don't bring everyone with you. That's probably a very big ask in an organization of over 3,000 people to bring every single person with you. But you do have to focus on who are the key people that I need to bring with me. And I obviously want to bring as many people with me as I can. And you do that by working collaboratively with people. You don't do that by sitting in an office in Canberra and sending out lots of communications directly to staff saying, this is what we're going to do. You, you have to demonstrate that that's been iterative and that's been developed together and that you bring your exec with you and they give you input and they give you really valuable feedback as well as staff in the network about where we should be focusing and why. So I spent a few months doing that exercise and developing our priorities in addition to, as I said, those Royal, Com Royal Commission priorities, which are really clear. So that gives me a, a really clear agenda as well. Um, and then you just have to tell staff, everyone in the department, what we're doing. You have to keep reminding people of what we're doing. And to me, this is because it's important um, from my own experience, I like to provide this for other people, but keep telling them why we're doing it and what a difference it's making. So it's that constant feedback loop. You can't just say, here's our priorities and we'll let you know next year how we're tracking, you know, keep up the good work. You have to constantly come back to people and say, here's our priorities again. Here's our movement against them. This is the difference that we've seen so far. This is our aim now in this area. This is what we're pitching for and this is how we're going to measure that. And we're going to keep letting you know where things are going well and where they're not and what we're changing. So it's a really constant feedback loop around a big change agenda and people need to feel like they're updated on where things are at, what we're doing and why. I mean, I would assess my own performance in leading a big change by how people who were working in the organisation told you what they felt I was focusing on or the department was focusing on and why. One of the things you said earlier, and I'm asking for my own assistance here, when you've got a team that's medium-sized like mine versus a team the size of, what did you say, 3,000 in your department, 
I think it's easy for an organization to get bogged down in the pursuit of perfection or the pursuit of process. And I imagine in a department that's very easy. You could have a team of people working very hard, doing stuff that's valid, but how do you keep them trained on the objective at the other end? Because sometimes 80% is good enough if you're going to move forward with an outcome. And I imagine you've led through situations where COVID's probably a perfect example where perfection's never going to, you're never going to get there. You, you have to make decisions, you have to move forward and you have to get people to down their tools and do the work that gets to the outcome that is the leader you know you're judged on. We, we can talk about this for hours. I mean, I think the thing to remember, as you said, as, you're, as an organisation gets bigger, there is a need for more rigour and in, in processes that just has to happen. And I've had many friends actually who've left the public service and gone to work in big companies. And I have this notion, I've, I've worked in non-government organisations, big non-government organisations, and then in the public service. I've never worked in the private sector. And I always had this notion that they would be telling me when I caught up with them for a drink that, oh, it's totally different things, you know, move so much faster. There's none of those annoying processes in these, and I'm talking big departments, big ASS, uh, ASX listed companies, sorry. Um, but they tell me, Alison, it's exactly the same. The bureaucracy is exactly the same and they find it just as tedious and, you know, frustrating when you're trying to get things moving quickly. And I, I do think, however, it is amplified in the public service. And I know people complain about that. People, that is very frustrating for people. But that exists for a reason. We have this additional layer of public accountability and we have to be able to demonstrate why decisions have been made. We're governed by really strict legislation and law that says this is how you have to do things. And a lot of the proceduralism that I know is so frustrating to people comes from that immovable reality and that, that the reality of public service that it just has to be that way so that you can deliver against all your legislative accountabilities. And the public are entitled to know that their money spent in line with the law and in line with all these rules and regulations that are set out. And that results in these, you know, hoops effectively. You have to tick this box and do that and do that and then you get to this outcome. So that is the reality. I think, however, as you've alluded to in your question, there is a tightrope there. There's a tension about how do you manage that reality? You can't get away from that. But at the same time, the the whole de the department exists and public service exists to deliver outcomes for people, to deliver something. There is an outcome. So you have to keep bringing it back to what outcome are we trying to achieve? In DVA, the outcome is the well-being and services for veterans. That's the outcome. So if the rules are militating against that or delivering something that falls short of what we would like to achieve for a veteran, you have to give staff the, the freedom and the, the license effectively to think a little bit creatively. It's still always within the law. We have to operate within the legislation. But there are provisions within legislation that um, recognise different circumstances, where a particular process might be able to put in place where someone else could consider something additional and make a decision that provides, you know, more for a veteran. 
So you have to invest in telling people at the end of the day, it's about what you deliver for veterans and there's lots of rules about what decisions you make, particularly with compensation, for example, very clearly set out in the legislation. But we want to administer the legislation in a way that's beneficial for veterans and here's where we've got these flexibilities and here's how we want you to use them still within the legislation. So if people don't, if you don't invest a lot of time and effort, particularly in the public service, to tell people how to do that, to tell people that that's important and that that's something that is valuable and giving people really clear guidance about how to do that, making them feel safe in how they do that, giving them, you know, escalation points, managers up the line who can help them do that. And then you recognise, one way you can uh, make people feel more comfortable to do that as well is recognising staff who have done that and saying, isn't this great? Let's look at Joe Bloggs here. They did this fantastic support for a veteran last week. This is how they did it and what a great outcome that was for that person. Um, so there's, you can show staff through what you recognise, what's important and where that flexibility exists and they just have to feel supported. But there are always these parameters around that. You know, when... Sometimes it's frustrating in the media and it's not just this job, any job I've done in the public service where, you know, you hear people ring up the radio station and they say, why can't they just do this? Why can't they just fix this? And you think, well, we're not, it would be against the law to do that. We can't do that. The legislation says this is how it has to work. And I know when you're on the other side of that as a punter in the community, as just a community member, you think, why is it so complicated? But the systems exist to provide accountability and transparency and they're amplified, as I said, in the public service because of that. It's taxpayer money. It's all taxpayer money. But I think there are degrees of freedom, Helen. I think that's a long way of saying, I think there are degrees of freedom and you keep, the way you introduce them is to remind people all the time, which is not hard in DVA because people are actually in DVA because they're committed to supporting veterans. And you just keep making that clear. This is why we're here. If we can't do it this way, can we do it another way? Is there something else? Go and talk to your manager. Let's see what we can do. Um, and if people feel supported and encouraged to do that, you start to get that real shift. Do you ever ring up as Janice from Newtown and defend um, <laughs> the decisions of the public service? I, I'm tempted. I'm tempted, but I don't. No, I don't do that. But I, I do listen. I thought it was it's worth sharing that because so I, I hear it so frequently. And even, you know, my mum and dad and people in my family say, oh, that's so stupid. Why does it have to be that way? It, it, surely it can be simpler than that. And they think that, you know, we're all a bit silly in the public service or we all love process or something. And, you know, I, I have an opportunity then, I suppose, at family barbecues if I want to take it. Most of the time I just want to relax and have my, and have my steak and, and not have to talk about it. But if I want to, I can t talk to them about why it is the way that it is and that, you know, there is still that real focus on outcomes and, you know, public good, but that it has some parameters. Can I ask about relationships? And this is hypothetical, so, you know, I state that from the outset, but in your career, you have been a subject matter expert. So in a particular role, you're a subject matter expert and there's someone brought in quite often over the top of you that doesn't have any expertise. And, and then the vice versa, you know, you come into a role because you're excellent at managing big projects and you've got people below you that are subject matter experts. How do you navigate those interpersonal relationships where in the first instance, uh, you have to 
accept that the person above you doesn't have any of the knowledge that you have and then the situation in the reverse? Yeah, that's a good question and would be relevant to lots of parts of the public service. Although I would point out that the further up you go in when you're in senior executive roles, they are increasingly less about technical expertise. They are, uh, well, it is technical expertise, but it's expertise in administration and, you know, people who have deep policy or service delivery expertise. That's what's being sought in those really senior roles. It's interesting in the Australian public service at the moment, the performance agreement framework now places, it, I mean, it's always been there, but now it places an equal emphasis on behaviours and how you do things. So what you have delivered and how you have done that um, are these, you know, two sides of the same coin in terms of how performance is assessed for senior executives. Um, but the way I've approached those issues in the past, and I've been on both sides of that, I'd say, I've been on the side where I think I know more about this than you and you're my boss. And I've also been on the other side when I'm the boss and I have people working to me who I know have a really deep technical expertise and would be thinking the same about me. So I've been on both sides. You have to recognise that. I think you have to have, you know, the ability to be self-critical and to recognise that, that, you know, there's different situations uh, you, you need to look critically at those situations and why you find yourself in a particular situation. And in, in when it was that example where I didn't have the technical expertise but had people working to me who did, it, that's quite confronting and you could feel really shaken by that. But I just kept reminding myself that that's not what my boss is looking for. And putting me into this job, they're not looking for the technical expertise. They're looking for delivery of policy frameworks and they want a really deep engagement with stakeholders and I'm good at that and I can work and that's why they've put me in this role and I can work with these people who have the technical expertise. So you, I think you have to take a bit of time to reflect in those situations as a starting point. My other immediate stance in that role when I found myself as the, the boss to people who had a much a really deep technical expertise that I did not have was to recognise that in them and say that to them all the time, not pretend that I was an expert. So I didn't purport to, I didn't go home and read, I did read lots of books actually about the area, but I didn't pretend off the back of that to know more than them. I just said, look, I'm, I'm swatting, I'm reading as much as I can, but I was more than willing and wanted to acknowledge that they had so much more experience than me in this area and technical expertise. And I said, my role is to help channel that to the priorities that we've been given here and I'll work with you on that, but I will be reliant on you for these aspects as well. I, I didn't feel confronted or I didn't feel vulnerable in saying that to them and acknowledging that and telling them where I would be drawing on their expertise. I also didn't feel vulnerable being in meetings where I would throw to them and say, this person knows a lot about that. They're going to give us a quick rundown on that or talk about where we've been in the past and where we're trying to take that in the future. In, in that position, when I was the one who wasn't the expert, you have to be self-assured enough to feel confident in why am I in this job? What are the skills that I bring? They are different to the skills that these other people bring and to feel assured about the complementarity of that, to find the complementary nature of that to recognise that in the way that you work and to make them feel, you know, that you're not challenged by their technical expertise and in fact, 
you're recognizing it, you're elevating it, and you're channeling it into these outcomes. So I was, I put a lot of thought into the way I did that. I come back to that. You have to be self-assured and not feel that that's displaying weakness and then they will, um, you know, that will diminish me and, and the way I can do this job if I acknowledge that. On the other side of it, when you're looking at the boss thinking, well, I know more about that than you, it's the same kind of reflection for me in that I'd think, well, I do know more about that than that person, but they know a lot more about all these other things that are part of the role as well. I mean, no role is unilateral and, you know, has one singular focus and one singular skill required, you know, unless you're, you know, playing Happy Mrs. Chicken, is it what's what it was on The Simpsons when Homer went to work and, and played that game on the desktop? Or um, Unless you're doing some incredibly rote task Nothing it requires one skill only. It requires a lot of skills. And the higher up you go, the more you see how multifaceted these roles are, how important soft skills are and relationships and collaboration and the way people work, their network and the way they use it. All of those things are really, really important and no less important than the technical expertise. So to me, the way I approach those situations, Helen, is reflecting on what are the complementary strengths? Why is that person in that job and what are their strengths? Why am I in this job and what are my strengths and how can we make that work together for the best outcome? And not to feel, you know, undermined by that or not to feel that you're devalued or you're giving anything away. You just have to approach that openly. And I have to say in my experience, that's worked well for me. What are your leadership strengths? And then I'm going to ask you your leadership weaknesses. My leadership strengths, I, I think it's about my, um, some of the things I've spoken about, my collaboration, relationship building, respect. I have a deep respect for people's perspectives and insights. And I think that makes me a stronger leader because I want to hear it. I want to listen to it. And I want to contemplate how that can be incorporated and taken on board. And that's insights and perspectives from staff in any department I'm working in who are on the front lines and I'll get in there on the front lines myself and I think that's really important. Can I just say as, as well for people who are senior leaders and it's interesting in the RoboDebt Royal Commission that that's been recognised in the recommendations that people who are senior leaders in an organisation need to have a direct connection to what's happening on the front line. They need to have that. That helps them do their job and there are risks involved in people not having those insights. That, that comes from a respect. You have to be curious. You, I think that's another leadership strength that I have is that I'm really curious. I'm always curious. Curious about people, curious about their perspectives, curious about how you can improve things and I'm just happy communicating with people. I really enjoy that and I'm driven to make things better. Yeah, I think they're my leadership strengths. I can probably talk for much longer about weaknesses. <laughs> just three, one or two, whatever. Uh, weaknesses, I think, I think sometimes I can be really determined and that sounds like it could be a strength, but it can manifest as a weakness in terms of a determination to do things. And often that's for me, I'm going to improve this. We're going to make this better and can just move too quickly and not take enough time to bring people with me and think about how best to achieve that. So you always feel in the public service, you just don't know how 
long you'll be in roles and you want to make a difference. Every day you want to make a difference. So I think the the leadership weakness there is just pacing myself and recognising that everyone, you know, works at a different pace and not all change can be achieved overnight. That would be way too much for people and in, including me. I also think communication, I've told you that's a strength. I think everyone can do better in communication and I'm very self-critical and there are every instance where things go badly, I will reflect and think I should have done that differently. I could have, I could have communicated that differently. So, and I, I think, I believe that to be the case. I don't think I'm making up issues in my own behavior or where I think I could have handled a situation differently. So, I think that's something you just continue to grow and develop in. So, I think communication as much as it's a strength um, is also uh, a weakness and somewhere where I want to continue to improve. And I just don't think you can ever communicate enough. Well, how do you manage a bad day? So, you've had a bad day at work. Um, and I asked this question because we've got an audience of young women who are not at the senior ranks that you're at now, but, you know, are going to go through a bad day at work. What advice have you got for them? Yeah, I think you have to do what you know decompresses you and, and makes you feel, you know, renewed or helps you feel resilient. A lot of that for me, there's there's some things that are important for me when I have bad days, and there are many. I like physical exercise. I like to go for a run. The other thing that I think for me gives me resilience and, you know, helps renew me is spending time with my family, my kids, um, but also my girlfriends as well. Like there are times when if I've had a really bad day, I might ring someone and just say, can we catch up? And I just want to go around and just, you know, debrief and just spend time talking and just chatting. Sometimes about chatting about what's been crappy about the day, other times not talking about that. You know, talking about something else that takes your mind away from it. And that gives you perspective as well. So I think people will know for themselves or maybe will increasingly know what helps them, what makes a difference for them. And of course, I never can go past some kind of trashy Netflix show or something that's completely mind-numbing that just enables you to switch off and you just take yourself into a different space and think, that, you know, this, I'll just take my mind onto something else, focus my mind on something quite inane that just gives you a chance to um, not stress about things and to feel better. And I'm pretty good, I have to say. I'm always pretty good at waking up the next day thinking, right, okay, well, that's that. That was a bad day. Um, here's the learning. And away I go. And sometimes you think it was nothing, I couldn't have changed anything. That was something that just went awry that day that wasn't on me, but you just have to keep going. So I think you have to really think about your own resilience and what's going to help you um, achieve that over your career. What advice do you give? And I'm sure you've been a mentor for many women in the middle of their careers. What advice do you give young women who are on their way to senior roles? I, I do talk to lots of young women. I really enjoy that mentoring of, of women in particular, and I think that's because I benefited from it myself so significantly in my career. I think my advice is, is always about that balance that I just spoke about, just reminding yourself of like making time for other things. Um, other things are important, and career has always been really important to me, but I've always had very strong focus on family and friends as well. Um, so I think I sometimes I'm encouraging younger women, it's not the end of the world, you know, that 
something might not go right in their career, they miss out on a particular opportunity and would talk to me about just how they're feeling like everything's off track. And it's just that perspective that there are other things that are important too, that other opportunities will open up. So I think it's just about giving them the the reminder that there's a lot of things that will continue to go right and wrong in their careers down the track and sharing from your own experience about, you know, being resilient in those circumstances and what it's led to and where you find yourself and where you find renewal and balance. I think they're, they're the fundamentals of those messages for people about, you know, who are really focused on their advancement of their careers. You just don't want to see people in a situation, and I've seen this, Helen, this is what I, I just want to try and prevent for people, a situation when they're later in their career, they put everything into it at the cost of friendships and family and being really single-minded about it and achieve great things, but finding that it's not as fulfilling and they're just looking for more and also feel trapped that they don't have other career options, that they've spent so much time in one particular sector or role that that's the only place they can be and it's actually just not everything to them. And I think the way you avoid that is by just keeping that balance all the time, going through and, and reminding ourselves of, you know, life is multifaceted, career is a really important part, but it's ne- never going to be everything. Alison Frame, I know there are many great public servants in uh, this country, but the Department of Veterans Affairs is very lucky to have someone with your commitment to the job and vision and insight. And really, I thank you for sharing some of that with us today. Thanks for having me, Helen. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall. 